I'd like to start off by thanking Simon for stealing one of my illustrations about the football team. So, um, well done, Simon. So my first confession is during that prayer time, I was just rewriting the sermon in my head. I'm sure that's never happened. Simon mentioned the football match yesterday and it was Juventus in Liverpool and Juventus went on to win and Simon said it was just one goal. And if you'd have watched the television coverage, you'd have been watching the match and as soon as the final whistle blew, all the Liverpool players probably felt totally rejected. There's been this big build-up to what they were going to do. They were going to do the quadruple, and all of a sudden that's dash, and they're there on the floor, totally rejected. Everything they'd planned and hoped to happen had gone in an instant. Just wondered if you've ever suffered rejection. How did you feel at school when they were picking the, the football team or the netball team? And you didn't make the grade. I know Jane wouldn't worry because she hates, hates sports. So she was quite happy to, to, to sit back. But how did you feel if you really wanted to be on that team and you didn't make it? You felt rejected. How about a group of friends that you do absolutely everything with? You've, you've come up through school with them. You've done everything together. Then all of a sudden you find out they're, they're doing things behind your back and you suddenly feel rejected. Suppose you work in a firm and the boss is saying, there's a promotion coming up. And you think to yourself, I've been there five years, this job is made for me, I am going to get that job. But then you find out Bill, who only started nine months ago, has been promoted over you. How do you feel rejected? How about when you ask your girlfriend, or perhaps these days your boyfriend, to, uh, that's for the ladies to say that, to marry you, and they turn around and say no. How do you feel rejected? Suppose you're married and one day your husband or your wife walks out on you. How do you feel? Rejected. The passage we're going to look at today is probably one of the most, one of the passages that has got one of the biggest rejections of all times in it. It's also reasonably safe to say that this passage is only 10 verses long and yet it contains... Uh, the message to the Bible. It's about rejection. Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem as king. We heard how Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead to find that colt or donkey and how he rode into Jerusalem and the crowds gathered and praised him. And blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus entered the temple courts where he drove out those who were trading. And then we went on to read, Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. 
Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Told you this would go wrong. Please forgive me. I'm glad Dee's here because I need her. (laughs) Some of you own dogs. See, there you go. In the world of dogs, there is a hierarchy. A group of people whose dog is so much superior to yours. Their dog has a pedigree that goes way back. It includes two best of breeds at Crufts and a couple of field champions in its line. Their dog is superior to yours without questions. Is that true? (laughs) (laughs) But it's true, isn't it? That people, their dogs are so much superior. As with any analogy, it's full of holes. But Jane said I couldn't get a dog illustration in somewhere and I just had to prove her wrong. (laughs) Those listening to Jesus had pedigree. They were a cut above everybody else. They were the chief priests, teachers of the law and elders. Now the Jewish council was made up from the priests, the Levites and ordinary Jews who were me- whose members of families had a pure line. They had a really good pedigree. In fact, even their daughters were allowed to marry priests. But this group of people were looking for a reason to kill Jesus. Jesus knew what was on their mind. He knew they wanted to kill him. Regardless of this, he told this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant But that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent a third and they wounded him and threw him out. This story is a parable. And a parable is, if you imagine two lines, Jesus is telling this story and there's a meaning over here. I try to think of a modern-day analogy Uh, sorry, a modern-day parable. And the only one I could come up with, and it's not very good, so you have to forgive me, that a certain man, call him Alan, was um, driving along the road and he had a puncture and he couldn't be bothered to stop, so he kept driving on a flat tyre. And in the end, he had to stop, take the tyre off, and it cost him a new tyre. So the parable might be a a stitch in time saves nine. It's not a very good illustration, but it's the sort of thing I'm trying to get over to you. What we've got to understand is the man in this parable is God. The God who created this world and everything in it. The vineyard belongs to the owner. That's God. He planted it. The vineyard is Israel. It's all too easy today to think of Israel as the country we see. But that's not the Israel we see here. The Israel are God's chosen people here. 
And in Isaiah, we read, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judea are the vines that he delights in. And he looks for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Throughout the Bible, Israel is often referred to as the vineyard. The people here in this parable would have known what the vineyard referred to in the same way as we would think of a rose, a thistle, a leek or a shamrock. The tenants were the people, that, uh, were the, people the ones God's, God, the owner, had left in charge of the vineyard. They were the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders. Those are the ones with the good pedigree. And the servants were God's prophets. A man planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Do you notice that they hadn't gone for the money? They'd gone for the fruit. He's been sent for the fruit of the vineyard. There was at the time something called a sharecropping agreement whereby a fixed amount of crops was due to be handed over to the owner at the proper time. He would expect to receive his share. It was now time for those tenants to pay their share crop. At harvest time, he sent, some of the, he sent, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. What's not written in the Bible, but it's written in Alan's version, so what would you have done? Well, in my version, it says that the servants went back to the owner. Sorry, boss, they won't pay. They beat me. I won't, I won't let them get away with this, said the owner. I'll confront them and tell them to pay up or get out. The cheek of some people. I don't know what you would have done, but I suspect most of us would have written something similar to that. That's not what the owner did. Instead, he sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Once again, we're confronted by the fact that they have rejected the owner's servant. Again, in my version... So the servant went back to the owner. Sorry, boss, they won't pay. And you should have seen the way they treated me. They, they beat me up as well. Are you OK, said the owner. Look, don't worry. I won't let them get away with this. I'll get my team of lawyers in. Who do they think they are? That's not what happened. Instead, he sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. Imagine being that something just imagine being that um, servant, the third one to go. The two that have gone before have been beaten up. I don't want to do the job. But still the servant went. Uh, and they beat him up. This time in Alan's version, this time the owner went to A and E to talk to the servant. What did they do to you? said the owner. That's it, I've had enough. It's the third time they have dissed me. Time to send in the headies to get my vineyard back. I'll make sure they suffer for what they did to you. 
that's not what happened. Instead, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out and killed him. Is this owner a bit of a fool? He keeps sending his servants to these tenants and each time it gets worse and worse till finally they end up killing his son. If you remember earlier, we said that the servants were God's prophets. Do we know what happened to God's prophets in the past? I've just listed four. Isaiah was sawn in two. Jeremiah, stoned to death. Amos, clubbed to death. John the Baptist, beheaded. Could have gone on for a long time, but I just kept that little list short. The owner of the vineyard did not send in the heavies as you and I would have done. He would have had every right to do so. Instead, he kept sending his servants, giving the tenants chance after chance. In the end, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my own son who I love. Perhaps they will respect him. I will send my own son whom I love. These are familiar words, aren't they? I will send my own son whom I love. I seem to remember that if you read John 3.16, it said, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But the tenants saw him and they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The tenants thought they would take the son's inheritance. So they plotted to kill him. But why did they want to kill him? In Jewish law, if a piece of property was unclaimed by the heir, it would be considered ownerless and could be claimed by others. The tenant assumed that the son had come as heir to claim his property and that he was, then if they killed him, they could claim the land for themselves. Do we kill the son? Do you need Jesus in your life? We can get by without him, surely. He's just a crutch. What sort of God, as we were praying for, would allow those sort of things to happen anyway? We're just being gullible. God's not a God of love. He is, or he would not allow those terrible things to happen. I'm sure you've heard all this said. But God gave chance after chance to the tenants, but they did not take it. Do we take note of the things God sends us? Do we listen to Jesus talking to us through a friend or a sermon? Do we listen when God talks to us through the Holy Bible? What will God do? Will you ignore him? Well, what happened to these tenants? Well, the owner of the vineyard, what would the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forgive. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, 
Then what is the meaning of what is written? The stone the builders reject has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone whom it falls on will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked at a way to arrest him immediately. But because, they, but because he had spoken in a parable, they knew that it was against him. But they were afraid of the people. Now, if you'd have been at our house a few weeks ago, or even a few months ago now, the way the building work's going, you would have found my bricklayer there. And imagine the foundations laid, and now this builder's come, and he wastes three quarters of a day mucking about, as I see it, just totally mucking about. He looks at the set of plans that the architect's drawn up. He measures. Then he goes back to the plans again. Then he re-measures. By mid-afternoon, he's taken two bricks and he's placed them at right angles. That's all. He hasn't cemented them or anything like this. He's just placed two bricks. I could have done that quicker. He did the same in all four corners. And it wasn't till almost knocking off time that he finally started up the cement mixer and put these cornerstones in place. The cornerstones he put in place were brick. They are my cornerstones for my building. As the name suggests, it's placed at the corner of a building to guide the workers in their course. A cornerstone is, or was, one of the largest and most important and solid stones of all. If carefully placed, it was carefully placed in the building. Once the cornerstone is in place, it becomes the starting point for every measurement in the construction and everything is aligned to it. See? I've got one of these at home. Well, I haven't because it's here now. But normally I have. And it measures levels. So my builder puts that on the cornerstone and he determines where the next line of bricks are going to be. And Lawrence didn't quite get this level, but near enough. Now, imagine this is totally level. It's very important that the builder gets this level, isn't it? Just imagine that one match there, okay? So we no longer got a level. It's just slightly out, but it, it won't really matter, will it? It's just a little bit. We'll leave it there for the moment. You see, the, old test, the cornerstone is the thing that everything is measured from. In the Old Testament, we read in Isaiah... So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make, I will make justice the measurement line and righteousness the plumb line. What God, speak, God was speaking to scoffers and boasters in, of Judea and he promised to send his cornerstone his precious son, who will prove a firm foundation for all who live and trust in him. In the New Testament, consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, 
but follow fellow citizens of God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and raises, rises to become his holy temple. Unfortunately, not everybody aligns themselves with the cornerstone. Some accept Christ, some reject him. Jesus, the stone, is the, builder, is the one that some builders reject. Why do people choose to reject? They want to build something different to what God has given them. They want to go their own way. They don't need God. I was baptised a long time ago now, but very slowly I started, albeit just like that little match, just to reject Jesus in a little way. I found I could get by without him sometimes. But the further I went along that line, that gap became bigger and bigger. I was rejecting the sun. I was not aligning to the cornerstone and that gap was growing. We should align ourselves to the cornerstone. As we move further away, the same gap gets bigger and bigger until eventually we are so far away from the cornerstone that the gap has grown and grown. Be warned, stay in line to the cornerstone. Look what happened to people in the past. The building of the Tower of Babel. The people rebelled against God and, and pursued their own project. Those who reject Christ disregard God's plan in favour of their own. What you ask yourself is the question. What do you ask yourself the question, do I reject Jesus? What about this chapel? Do we reject Jesus? Do we align ourselves to the cornerstone? Do we have his, do we have his God's church, in our hearts or our own agenda? Judgment is promised to all those who reject Christ. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken. Anyone who falls, it falls will be crushed. There used to be a saying, which you don't hear very much now, that everybody remembers where they were when war broke out. I expect you've heard that saying. Well, I'm going to test you now. Where were you on the 31st of August, 1979? Okay. You all look at me blank. So if I said to you, where were you on the day Princess Di died, you'd all have vivid memories. A few weeks ago, it was Easter, when Jesus was rejected and killed by those tenants. But who actually killed Jesus? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Who crucified Jesus? Was it the Romans under Pontius Pilate? Was it those who erected the cross? Was it the soldiers who drove in the nails? What about the Jewish priests, the teachers, the law, and the crowds that shouted, crucify him? What about his disciples, Judas who betrayed him, Peter who denounced him and the rest that fled? 
But what about you? Where were you when they crucified the son? Where were you when they tried him? Where were you when they whipped him? Where were you when they crucified him? I see the crowd in Pilate's Pilate's hole. I mark their woeful men. Their shouts, the shouts of crucified appalled with blasphemy between. And of that shouted multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognise my... I see the scourges tear his back. I see the pits and crown. And of that crowd who smite and mock, I feel that I am one. Around John cross, cross I, the throng I see, mocking soft sufferers groan. Yet still my voice seems to be as if I'm not Twas I that shed the blood, I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God, I joined the mockery. Yet not the less that blood avails to cleanse away my sin, and not yet less that cross prevails to give me peace within. That was a hymn written quite a long time ago. And I said to Paul earlier, I'm going to find the music to it and make him play it. (laughs) The question I'm going to leave you with is, is Jesus the cornerstone of your life? Are you aligned to him or will you be broken and dashed by him on the final day? We're going to sing the closing hymn, and I've, I've got a problem. I don't quite know how to say this, because the opening line is, my hope is built on nothing less. Now, if we sing that, we're actually proclaiming that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because it says, my hope is built on nothing less. So when we sing it, if we're believers, think about what you're actually singing Think about what you're actually proclaiming. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Saviour's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. Please sing this as a song of commitment and trust in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone.